Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, my name is Jess Phillips, and this is yours sincerely. I've always been a prolific letter writer, both the good and bad kind, and know the power of putting words on paper. So in this podcast, I want to give my guests a chance to celebrate three people that mean the world to them. Someone they love, someone who's no longer around, and someone who doesn't realise how significant a role they've played in their lives. And when we've heard more about each person, they'll reveal how they would sign off each letter. Philippa Perry is a psychotherapist and author. She has presented several documentaries, including The Truth About Children Who Lie for BBC Radio 4, Being Bipolar for Channel 4, and How to Be a Surrealist with Philippa Perry for BBC 4. Her latest book, The Book You Wish Your Parents Had Read and Your Children Will Be Glad That You Did, was published by Penguin in 2019 to critical acclaim and was the number one Sunday Times bestseller. And today I'm excited to talk to her about her letters that she would send to three people who mean the world to her. Hello, Philippa. How's things? How are you? Uh, How am I? I've got a cold, but I haven't got COVID. That's what everybody says now. You have to, as soon as you say you're ill, you have to say, but it's not COVID. Yes, that's right. It's not COVID. I've had to do a test every day. It's not COVID. Oh, have you had COVID? No, have you? Me neither. Don't know how I've escaped it. No, I haven't. And I, I've sort of have gone to plays and things and, you know, been in rooms with masses of people. Still haven't got it, but I've had three jabs now. Right then. So uh, this podcast is all about letters and letter writing and writing letters and sentiment about people that we love and like being nice about people, which often we aren't. Although I'm going to say... That oh, do you... I have to be nice to people in these letters? No, you don't have to. You don't have to necessarily be nice. But you are win the prize of making the nicest TV programme. Thank you. In lockdown, honestly, my whole family, we would all sit together and I've got two teenage sons and they don't really want to sit with me. It was nice, like, and we don't see enough nice things about people feeling joy and happiness, even in the sadness. Nobody was kicked out of a hot air balloon. It was just so lovely to see, like, people just trying to, like, fashion pieces of wire into some amazing piece of art in their own homes. It was just so pure joy i it was genuinely the best tv program in lockdown and my husband got to the point where he was like if i see anything else made on zoom that's the end of it i'm i don't want to see zoom adverts uh, but your tv show he was like this is the exception this is a well-made piece of television during uh covid it wasn't all yeah, on it zoom wasn't, yeah. because we had robot cameras in the studio and i think what was great was that they were just switched on all day and we were there all day. So they had four days of recording to get me and Grace and saying something nice to each other. I mean, obviously, they had to wait a long time. But then, but then they got it. And then we looked like the most wonderful couple ever, ever born. It was just so lovely, though. And just the joy of people sending in their stuff. I just, just lovely. And some of the stuff. Like, you must have found some genuine, like, amazing talent whilst doing that that people didn't know about that could definitely have, like, a career in doing art. It was amazing. I remember it so well. I got Honestly, I loved that TV show. I was the best. The only good thing about lockdown, that and I got to, like, eat dinner with my family every day, which I don't normally do, so that was nice. Right, so are you much of a letter writer, Philippa? I was, because I went to boarding school, and so writing letters was the only form of communication because you had to queue up for the phone 
and you're only allowed like one phone call a term or something. Were your parents far away or like the sort of Hong Kong flung sort of parents? They were an hour away down the M6. I didn't see them more than, went home for half term and they'd come for one exiat. So I'd see them by every four weeks. It's just when you have a day out, that's what they called a day out at boarding school. You learn ever such fancy words. So you were at boarding school. You used to, did you used to just write endless letters to your parents? I wrote endless letters to my parents, but my parents would just come back and say, you shouldn't have written in pencil. There was a spelling mistake. So I just thought, right. And so instead of writing letters to my parents, well, I still wrote letters to my parents because, you know, you had to. I would just write and write and I wrote in diaries and, and notebooks all my little thoughts and feelings and how misunderstood I was in notebooks and notebooks and notebooks. So I became a writer at quite a young age. I didn't actually do any published writing until I was 50. Have you got all the diaries still? No, they were really embarrassing. <laughs> they, had to, they had to be burnt. I mean, what if somebody <laughs> read them? I regret burning them now. I mean, you will know more why this is an affliction than uh, me because of, of your, your deeper knowledge of psychology. But why is it that when, even when, when you're a teenager and even a young adult, when you are writing things, that you are in a total fantasy world, but you actually believe it? Like, you can convince yourself of almost anything. I don't know if you are in a total fantasy world, but what you're doing is sort of trying on identities because you know you want to break out of your family of origin, but you don't know who you're going to be. You don't know what your new tribe is going to be. So there is an element of the fantasist, you know, why you, you know, try on an emo hat or, a, or you know, what tribe shall I belong to? And then when you, you know, mature a bit and just slip into an identity, whatever it is, then you don't mind your parents so much because you feel strong as who you are. So you don't have to have that rebellious thing. Because biologically, you kind of know you've got to find a new tribe because they're going to die before you. So you have to find a new group to support you. And so... You've just got to decide who and what it is and who and what you will be to join it. Do you have any special letters that you've kept, like love letters or letters from dignitaries? We've had people who've had letters from queens. I'm not a very good keeper of letters. I'm not a very well-organised documenter of anything. I don't tend to keep things. I'm not a hoarder. I haven't even got the letters... Uh, that my husband and I wrote to each other because we got together pre-internet. We've been together over 30 years. So I haven't even got those, but I do remember getting them, but I've no idea where they are. There are two categories of people and some people keep absolutely everything. And my husband is like a sort of male working class Marie Kondo who should write a book called Fuck It In The Skip because that is his attitude towards almost any of my belongings is that I should throw everything away. Well, there was a very, very learned book once called Mouse and Mole. And they were clearing, this is a children's book, and they were clearing out the house. And one of these great philosophers, either Mouse or Mole, said, you can have stuff or you can have space, but you can't have both. And I am a great lover of space. So I have asked you to think about three different people, or three different letters, really, that you would like to write and tell us about those people. So the first one being just the person who means the world to you, who you'd want to write a letter to. The thing is, I haven't left anything unsaid. I have said everything I want to say to all my friends and my lover. So I just picked the person that came to mind. It's Yolly. Yolly. And tell me a little bit about Yolly before we hear her letter. Yolly came to this country when she was nine years old, speaking no English whatsoever, with her parents who also didn't speak English. And she picked it up so quick that in about six months in this house that they were living in with other Spanish families, she's Spanish, age nine, the interpreter for the house. She got to be an adult 
a bit too quick, I think. I mean, it's difficult to talk about someone else. You shouldn't really talk about someone else. But, you know, she'd take all these aunties to the doctors and translate for them. And she's probably heard more at the doctors than she should have done for being nine years old. Her mum was a cleaner, dad was a cook, and she went to a comprehensive school in London and she was incredibly clever, really clever. She speaks English with received pronunciation, I think it's called. She speaks very well indeed. She speaks very proper. Then she went to drama school and she's worked as an actor all her life. And now she is an executive coach as well. And her husband, Johnny, has been my husband's best friend for 40 years. And so when did you meet Yolly then? Grayson already knew Johnny. She'd had a baby five years before, but then we had a baby at the same time and then we became close. That is an incredibly bonding experience. There are people in my life who I hadn't seen for years and, you know, we found ourselves knocked up at the same time and now I would literally, I would murder for them. I would kill to protect them because there's nothing quite like somebody who understands how, A, tedious early parenthood is and will try and take you out of some of the tedium it's so difficult. It's just so difficult and brilliant and all of those things. But you can't really talk to your partner about it quite so much because, you know, ultimately they're the person that you're allowed to shout at when you're annoyed with the baby. <laughs> you can't you used to think, I can't shout at the baby. There's no point shouting at the baby. So just used to shout at Tom instead. So I needed somebody else who I wasn't going to just shout at all the time. Yeah, so I wrote her a letter. So interrupt <laughs> any time you like. No, go for it. All right. Hi, Yolly. Thanks for dinner. No one cooks like you do. Never a shortcut. Proper curry you cooked last night and dal as well. And then a funny pudding of avocado and limes and pomegranates and dates, which should have been terrible, but was really lovely. And orange cake, in case I still wanted more, which I did. Thanks for telling me about the leadership archetypes you get from Shakespeare. What were they? I can't remember, but they were really good. Uh, order, action, change, creativity, relationship. And then these are broken into subgroups. Like creativity is the dreamer and the storyteller. I remember that. Anyway, this idea of using a model is knowing which of the archetypes are your strengths and which need more development. Anyway, never mind about that. I did mean to ask you something about what we'd been texting about regarding leadership and presence, but I forgot. But the main thing I have to thank you for from last night are the boots. How did you know what size my weird feet were? Full length leather Spanish boots, lifetime boots that fit and are comfy. You sent your daughter to Spain to get them for me. OK, so she was working over there. But still, Yolly, what a lot of trouble you went to to get me the most lovely boots in the world. Wow. Then what a laugh we had with Johnny and his, well, your new car, his new car, your new car. He bought it because a bloke made a video in a Morrison's car park and showed it to him. And the bloke couldn't even open the car door because he'd lost the key. But he showed the interior by wiping the rain from the windscreen. And Johnny went all the way to Ashford on the strength of that. Anyway, thank you for the ride in the car. Very funny that he wouldn't let the dog get in the new car. It was a fine new car, a very car-like car. The best car, I'm sure, that has ever been sold by a bloke making a half-assed video on his phone in a Morrison's car park. I'm supposed to be writing a letter to you, but what can I say? Thank you for dinner. Thank you for 30 years of dinners. Yes, we have known each other that long. Remember the time I wet-nursed the kid that bought the boots back from Spain because you were working? What a privilege that was. She wasn't that chuffed about it, really, but she managed. And then you fed my daughter when she was a bit older and, she, and you asked her if she liked broccoli and she said, only if it's blanched. God, what did I bring into the world? I have been asked to write a letter to you for a podcast. I picked you. 
I think it was the boots and last night's dinner that probably made you pip all the others to the post. Yup, I can be bought with a pair of Spanish boots. You are very clever and very accomplished and have overcome many obstacles, not least being an immigrant, not least not having English as your first language, not that anyone would ever know as you speak and pronounce it with more correctness and erudition than anyone. Not because you are a Shakespeare scholar and very clever. That's not why I love you. You wanted to do an MA to do with Shakespeare once, but gave up the idea when you found out that you yourself were on the recommended reading list. Ha ha ha. You always think you're underqualified. Or you did. But last night, I really felt you were not doing that to yourself anymore. No, anyway, it's not for your talents or generosity or boots. All right, it is for the boots a bit. It's because after 30 years and our husbands have known each other for 40, we've got kind of comfortable with each other. That's nice, isn't it? You know, we say after dinner, shall we sit soft? Meaning, shall we leave the kitchen and hit the sofa? But we have been sitting soft with each other for decades now, and it is a beautiful thing. And next year, COVID permitting, and if we are all four still alive, we will all go to Spain on holiday and we will hear you speak your Spanish and we will be all very, very proud of you and glad of you. We love you. I love you. I love how you love your children. Your oldest is the age now that we were when we met. And uh, I really appreciate you for cigarette pie. Lots of love, me. She sounds amazing <laughs> at the point you started to cry i started to cry though because it's the idea of comfort the idea of somebody you can just be yourself with completely and utterly is such a gift and in my line of work i meet lots of people who don't have anybody that they feel completely and utterly comfortable with and like all the money in the world, all the riches, all the fame, all the success, like just having somebody you can, I don't know, just watch strictly with in communal silence is the greatest gift. It's such a gift. It's just you and them. And there's nothing else, there's nothing more romantic or erudite to say. It just is. And that is such a gift. It's such a gift. And if you think about 30 years of dinners, yeah. <laughs> you know, sometimes once a week, sometimes once a month, but always regular, you know, depending on where we are with work, because sometimes she goes away with work and stuff. But, yeah, always. Avocado and pomegranate pudding, I've got to say, I, I wasn't with Yolly at that point. That no, sounds disgusting. a bit of lime through it, and it came through. It was, what, how, what? She sweetened it with dates. I mean, what? I think she made it up. Is Yolly short for something? Yolanda. Like Yolanda. Yolanda Vasque. Yolanda Vasque. My favourite part of the story was like the ultimate sort of almost mansplain was that she tried to take a course and she was on the reading list. It would be so embarrassing to put your hand up and just be like, well, actually, that wasn't what I was saying. I would have stayed on the MA for that reason, just to lure everyone no, into thinking. No, I think she just wanted like, you know. to learn because she always thinks she's underqualified, probably because English isn't her first language and she always thinks yeah. she has to catch up, but she doesn't. She's caught up and overtaken everybody. Psychologically, I think she's just about caught up with that. But she was thinking, oh, I need an MA because she was t doing a lot of teaching at the Globe at that time. And she thought, oh, I should know more about Shakespeare. Oh, I'm on the reading list. Oh, maybe not. <laughs> Brilliant. I mean, Yolly just sounds like a total legend and there is something just deeply powerful about the comfort that, especially I, I hope that men feel it. I hope that men feel it. And I think they do. I think they do. My husband does feel it with some of his friends, but it feels like deeply like, I don't know, it's like visceral, that feeling of comfort I feel with my sort of seven best girlfriends. Yeah, I think they do. But there are some men... 
that leave all the social life up to their wives. And then when they are sadly widowed, they are alone because they don't know how to pick up the phone and go, hi. And that is really right. sad because the wife was the, is the social secretary so often. Yeah, well, that, my, when my mum died, I was really worried that that would happen to my dad. I mean, luckily he lives on a street where they've all lived on the street for 50 years sort of thing. And so there's pe- there's neighbours and things. But he became like an absolute social animal after my mum died. And I was absolutely thrilled. But it was more, I think, he learned to make the effort. It was more people like my aunties, not real aunties, you know, the fake ones that you call auntie, just my mum's friends, um, ringing and making him do it and inviting him to things and making him do it. But yeah, but whereas my husband just said to me, you do remember I'm going out to the pub tonight and he's... He's pissed off with his mates, so I shan't worry about widowing him. Yeah, he'll be all right. What is cigarette pie? Oh, she caught her daughter smoking with her daughter's best friend in the house, and she was absolutely livid, but she directed all her anger at the daughter's friend because she thought, not my little angel, must be the, must be the other one, you know. And then the daughter was absolutely livid that she was livid with her friend and not her, so yelled back at her. Uh, I think the friend slinked out of the house at this point. And they were both so angry with her that they sort of went into opposite ends of the house. And then what happened, the reconciliation when it happened, I don't know if it was that night or the following night, was that she had a, some leftovers and she rolled out some pastry and put it on the top of the leftovers like you do. And she wrote yeah. with pastry letters, cigarette pie on it. That was the sort of the peace offering that got them back together again. I started smoking when I was 11 years old and I used to think that my parents didn't know. I mean, obviously I reeked, so they're, they're not idiots. But I remember when I was 19, my mum took me to New York she said, if you do well in your A-levels, we'll go to New York. And uh, so and I did I did well. So she took me to New York just after um, September the 11th, in fact. And I remember I kept like nipping out of the hotel to go and have a fag. And then coming back and, and I remember just sitting at a table outside in a cafe. And she just handed me a pack of 20 Marlboro Reds. And she said, I'd much rather you didn't just keep going away, just have a cigarette. <laughs> for God's sake, child, I've known you smoked for a long, long time. You don't need to just keep lying to me anymore. So I was like, that, great. So I started smoking in front of her. It's hard to smoke in front of your mum for the first time. And then she just was totally... I mean, obviously she hated it and wished I didn't smoke. And ironically, she never smoked a cigarette in her life and lung cancer killed her. So, uh, yeah, so, I mean, I don't smoke anymore. I just vape. But, well, Yolly, what a bloody woman. She sounds absolutely excellent. And I wish to become friends with her to get some Spanish boots. Yeah, I would. (laughs) (laughs) And I have to say, it is my experience of somebody growing up in a place where lots and lots of children act as um, interpreters for their families. And, I mean, a huge percentage of my constituents have... Their children have more than one language. And it makes for some clever children. Without question, it makes for some resilient, clever, smart children. And it's a lot of responsibility. Yeah, it is, absolutely. Little kids come in and their mums are having to tell me about abuses that they've suffered and the kids are having to try and explain it. It's it's not an ideal situation, but you watch children be really, really, yeah, like sort of maternal towards their own or paternal towards their own families. There is a charm about it as well, definitely. So the second letter I asked you to write was about somebody who's no longer here. So who would that letter be to? I couldn't really speak to mum and dad when they were still alive because I was always wrong. So I couldn't tell them about any of my ideas because I was getting above myself or I was a cracked pot. They used to call me a cracked pot. To get on side with them, what I had to do was sort of over-adapt to them. And I sort of learned to do that when I was older. In fact, after I'd had psychotherapy, in fact. And I can remember once my husband gave me a pair of yellow Crocs for Christmas and my mother was horrified and she said, you can't wear those in London. And 
I felt the sort of 16-year-old me rise up and sort of got stuck in my throat, luckily. Because normally, before I'd had therapy, I would have said, yes, I can, I can do what I like. But I remembered from therapy, think what it's like for her, think what it's like for her, be on her level. And so... I said, oh, mum, you think it's the 1950s and everybody's wearing new look Dior. And you imagine a very nice cocktail party and me coming in with a pair of neon clogs going clump, 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 while everybody else is terribly, terribly smart and I will be ostracised. And she went, yes, yes. (laughs) So that is the sort of movement. I had to make, I mean, I'm only talking about a pair of shoes here and why I'm entitled to wear them. But she could never see, I couldn't say, oh, it's different now, Mum. Anybody can wear whatever they like. You know, we don't hold store by wearing cocktail dresses when I go to dinner at Yolly's. You know, don't don't worry about it. And But she wouldn't get that. So I'd have to get on her level first. And... I thought it was a shame that they never learnt to do that. They never learnt to see what the world, think about what the world would look like from my sister's point of view or from my point of view. And actually, I need to thank them because had they been able to do that, I probably wouldn't have become a psychotherapist. I probably wouldn't have written a best-selling book about how to have better relationships with children. And so that is the letter to my parents, the book you wish your parents had read and your children would be glad that they did. Because that was really a letter to my parents, that whole book about, you know, don't think how you can manipulate a baby to do this or that. Think about how you can get on side with the baby and relate to the baby, relate to the child, relate to the teen, relate to the adult child. And... Even, you know, even when we were quite grown up, they'd think like, well, if I give your sister a deposit for a house, maybe she'll never learn to earn a living. I sort of like, oh, stop (laughs) treating us as though we're clay. You know, we're people. And were they quite just austere people? Were they like, you know, in my head now, they're sort of like Victoriana. They were quite old. My... Mother had me when she was 41. My gosh, that's unheard of back then. And her mother had her when she was in her 40s as well. So really, I'm a sweet Edwardian child. (laughs) Never mind the swinging 60s, never got to see them, did I? No, I was still in Edwardian Britain. And they sent you off to boarding school? Yeah, Um, they sent me off to boarding school because I grew up outside Warrington and there wasn't a very big middle-class population and they thought I'd pick up a terrible accent you know I've already got a terrible accent but they thought I'd pick up a worse accent and they wanted me to be posh because they're a bit hyacinth bucket I was going to say are they were they wealthy though or were they a bit hyacinth bucket were they um wanting they were wealthy they were rich did you ever tell them that you loved them? Because you said earlier you don't leave things unsaid. But um... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, but I never got it back. And, and my father used to think it was hilarious that my daughter and I would t- often tell each other that we loved each other. And he just went, ew, I love you, I love you. Yeah, but he did love us. I know he loved us very much. And... I know he loved us because when he got... My mother died and about 10 years later, he got terrible dementia. He was in a a very, very nice home, actually. He thought he was sort of... He thought either my sister and I, depending on who was visiting him, had done terribly well. We had got this stately home. It was just the old people's home. He was sort of... (laughs) Delusions of grandeur to the end, really. (laughs) He watched the telly at at this uh, old people's dementia home. And it was the Grand National on, and he thought he was actually at the Grand National, which is something he often would have been at the Grand National. And he said, I'm going to put a bet on a horse. And he chose a horse, and he, and he said, yeah, put a bet on it. And then as the visit was drawing to a close, I said, how did that horse do? He said, oh, you'll never believe it. I won £4,000. I went, oh, that's fantastic. What are you going to do with it? And he said, I'm going to give it to my daughter. And I thought, hello, he's forgotten who I am again. And I said, um, 
what's your daughter like? Because I was dying to know. And he looked at me and looked at me and he said, she's a lot like you, only much, much younger. (laughs) (laughs) All in his, his illness, because I had to stop him driving. After he set the house on fire, I had to put him in a home. We couldn't live with carers in the home anymore because he was just like too aggressive with them so he had to go to a home and each time it was me so he said I'm cutting you out of my will every time I went okay fine he basically was sounding very austere and like you'd not had a great childhood and you just totally that story that you just told about the my daughter but she's a lot younger he was immediately rehabilitated in my mind he sounds like a right laugh he was a man of his age you know he was born in 1919 i think he just thought you know women and children should just be seen and not heard and but it was like it was it was enculturated he wasn't a bad person he was a laugh And we did share a sense of humour and we could have a laugh together, but always on his terms and not often at himself. Yeah, I think what you were saying as well about being able to see the things from the baby's point of view and the the teenager's point of view. I had my son when I was young. I was 22 when I had my first baby. And I often feel like we just grew up together and he's actually closer to my age than... Like, he's like my contemporary, my eldest son... I find that that is really, really helpful in our relationship because I can totally, I can remember what being his age was like very freshly. I'm like, well, you're bound to be annoyed about this. I'd have been annoyed. Like, I remember, like, I remember that this was how I would have felt about it. Yeah, I have an excellent relationship with him, actually. Because you can say things like, oh, yeah, that's awful, rather than, well, you should. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, my younger son, I made leave a party at 2am. We were all at this, at our friend's party and all of his little mates were there because they're the children of my friends. And it, we, we were all dancing till two o'clock. And I said, we had to leave. And on the way home, he said, you've literally ruined my life. Uh, this is the worst thing that's ever happened. He, he left me on my own at 2am two in, 2 in the street, walk, kept walking back, had to keep going and getting him. And I just kept saying... I know how you feel. Like I would hate me too. Like I, I know you feel like I've ruined your life, but I've got to try and be reasonable. It's, it's getting late. We've got to be up in the morning. It's Remembrance Sunday. We've got to go and lay reeds and things. And it is like, I feel like you're feeling a bit of sympathy, but I need more sympathy than you're giving me. I was like, I don't know how much more sympathy I can give without being like, get in the, the house. <laughs> it's hard being a parent though. <laughs> It is hard being a parent, and maybe you did ruin his life. I mean, he said he was never going to speak to me again. He was about to make the connection that was going to change everything. (gasps) Don't say that! I ruined his life. This is dreadful. Um, Well, so you'd sign off this letter to your parents, with, with ultimately with gratitude is what you're saying there, yeah. I mean, they did their best with what they had. They were good people. They weren't horrible on purpose and that's like 99% of parents do their very very best and are not horrible on purpose which is why I wrote the book just to make it a little bit easier for them we'll be back for Philippa's final letter after a short break hold up what was that Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite 
of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So the final letter is to somebody who you, you might never have met or like who just has no idea what effect they've had on your life. Right. Now, this is very difficult because there isn't one. There really isn't one person here. I mean, you, you are obviously a person who tells everybody your feelings and when you like them and when you feel strongly about somebody, you're obviously letting them know, which is, seems like a really good thing. You're like the first person who's ever said that. Most people are like, I could never say this to this person. I wish I'd had a chance. Yeah, but you are, you are like, you know, lay, lay your cards on the table with your feelings. I like it. Good. Well, that's 20 years of therapy. Glad it wasn't wasted. Good. Um, But talking of therapy, Irvin Yalom, who is a psychiatrist in the States and writes books. M. Scott Peck, who is a psychiatrist in the States and writes books. He's more of a pop psychologist than Irvin. Irvin's a bit more serious. Scott was a bit more of a poppy psychologist. Alice Miller, who was a Swiss psychoanalyst. Jane Austen, we know about Jane Austen. <laughs> she lived from 1775 to 1813 or something. Harvey Peeker. Now, you might not know who Harvey Peeker is. He wrote a memoir comic book called American Splendor. Changed my life, that book. It changed my life because it's a realistic memoir and it's also funny. And he got other people to do the drawings for him because he can't draw. So he wrote the book, but he wanted it a graphic, like a graphic novel, except for it's not a novel, it's real. And then I thought, oh, I could do that. And I did. And I wrote a book called Couch Fiction and I got somebody else to do the drawing. It's just been reissued with my daughter doing the drawings. And that book changed my life. So Harvey Pika changed my life because he gave me the inspiration to do that book. And uh, I like the way Susie Orbach writes about psychoanalysis as well. I haven't put Freud on that list because I find him quite difficult to read. Sorry, Freud. I mean, some of your ideas are, you know, what everybody has edited down into making into really good ideas. You were the one that started them. But I'm sorry, Freud, you're not on my shortlist, even though this lot wouldn't be on the shortlist if it weren't for you because you are the father of it all. Well, first of all, there's a there's a grouping, isn't there? There's a grouping of psychoanalysts and and uh, Jane Austen and, and Harvey Peake. And, <laughs> yeah, I mean, Jane Austen may well have been running counselling sessions in her uh, <laughs> in her spare time. She probably did. She seemed to have quite sort of a weight of the world on her shoulders. So the group of eminent analysts. Now, do you feel in the last? And I've definitely I've definitely noticed this in the last decade that we have moved on from the idea. It's become like a very American idea when I was growing up. Going to therapy was a very it was the sort of thing that you just saw in pop culture on um the television that American rich Americans did and we didn't have so much of a culture for talking therapies here apart from you know for the the very ill the sort of psychiatric rather than anything else do you feel that it's like we've totally like there's been a total renaissance of that in the last decade I mean, I've been doing it for 30 years, so I like to think in the last 30 years it's got a little bit more uh, normal for the worried well as well as the very ill to go to therapy. And it's quite a good idea for the worried well to go to a good therapist or a therapist that's a good match for them is a better way of putting it because a good therapist might not be a good therapist for everyone. I have to say I've only ever once tried to go to therapy and only because my university made me and I really loathed it. However, I'm about to start doing it and for the first time ever in my life, I've run therapy organisations, mainly for people who, you know, uh, victims of sexual violence. Um, and, And as far as I'm concerned with regard to that, I mean, it would be too bold to say that you can't. Anyone who suffered such a, you know, violent trauma, 
I don't think that there is any recovery that doesn't walk through talking therapies, personally, uh, in my experience. I don't know that you have to go to a trained therapist, but what you do need to do, usually, is put your experience into words or into pictures or into something. You have to process what happened to you in a way so you can hold it. So if you process something into words, you've got the words, you can say them again and again and again, and then the, then the sharp point of the trauma can get blunted with the more that you talk about it or the more that you draw it or the more that you somehow take possession of it so it doesn't take possession of you. That's sort of the idea. And... Really, it gives you a coping mechanism because it's not as though you'll never get another flashback or something. It's like what you can do so you're not overwhelmed by a flashback. You can get back in the driving seat a lot quicker than you could before the therapy. And obviously, lots of the people I see, the coping mechanisms are self-medication in various different ways. And for me, I have to say that the lack of availability of it, the waiting lists for, or oh, it's just dreadful. When you get, like you did, you get to your counsellor or you get to your psychiatrist or your therapist or whoever it is you're seeing for psychological therapy. And for one reason or another, you're just not a good match. It's not like just finding a doctor. It's like halfway between finding a doctor and a boyfriend. It's sort of like you've got to like them. You've got to be able to have a, a good working alliance. And you can't if you find them a thick or annoying or they don't get you. Mine kept asking me questions about my dad, which might have been totally reasonable, but my dad is fine. <laughs> like, I was just like, I don't really have anything to say about him. Nice guy. Like him. What she or he had was their own agenda yeah, yeah. rather than following you. They were going, oh, this must be daddy issues. Page 42, I'll do the textbook. That is what it felt like. That is what it felt like. I was just like, my dad's fine. I like him. The thing, the, yeah, you, one of the things you really need is authenticity. Yeah, no. And, and then when I was laughing, he said, I feel like your laughing is masking something. I was like, I am actually laughing now because I'm finding this quite amusing. But this was 20 years ago. Most of my friends go through periods now where they are in therapy of one sort or another. And I have for some reason resisted this but I shall I shall I shall resist it no more and start doing it because like you know life starts to get on top of you doesn't it otherwise so of your group of analysts what is it about them that makes them special because there must be billions of people who've written books I think it's the age and the stage I was when I read them if I'd read somebody else like if I'd read the, the psychoanalyst who's written a great book Stephen Gross he wrote a great book if I'd read him when I was in a formative stage then that would have been the book but I was already more formed as a therapist when I read that and I went yeah but you've missed out this and you haven't done that but <laughs> when I read these I was more really hungry and greedy for the information and interesting, the first one I did read was M. Scott Peck, which is, it's kind of, it would be scoffed at professionally, really, because it was a pop psychology book. I think it's called The Road Less Travelled. And it's about his journey into being a psychiatrist and, and practising psychotherapy and the clients that taught him things along the way and his own special journey. And he did make himself into a very sort of clever-sounding uber-therapist. And he kind of spoilt that because as he matured, he owned up to all his faults in his later books. It's sort of like, yeah, I know I came across as the perfect therapist in that, but actually I was screwing all my students when that was published. And he's sort of like, oh, you've just spoilt it. He said, yeah. Can I just say, I like that he spoilt it. That is a, a rare moment of honesty and clarity. But I wanted to keep him on the pedestal and I was a bit disappointed. <laughs> I know. So it's more about you when you read them. They gave you an awakening. Irvin Yalom was very good about how to be a therapist, how to listen, how to be in relationship. He was very good for that. Alice Miller is, oh, she's the one for insight. Wow, she's amazing. She addressed the question of how come 
some people have really awful childhoods and they turn out just okay. And some people seem to have ideal childhoods and turn out neurotic or psychotic. What's the difference? And she worked out from her practice that the difference was a sympathetic witness. So if there's someone in your childhood who knows who you are, can mirror a good image of the real you back to you that you agree with, then you probably will be all right. So if you're beaten by your dad, say, you think it's because I'm a bad person, I'm really bad, that's why he beats me, because I love my daddy like that. And there's some auntie that comes in and goes, he shouldn't do that, you're not bad. That is the person that will make the difference. And I think the book about it is called Fascist or Artist, because she reckons if you have a sympathetic witness, instead of becoming a fascist, you become an artist. I'm going to read this book because in all my years, I'm not in no way a psychotherapist, but I have spent hours and hours in front of people who've had dreadful traumas. And when people ask me, I do lots of like, you're going to companies or organisations and they say, well, what do we do if somebody comes forward? And I say, look, you don't need to know anything special. You just need to genuinely just bear witness to somebody is enough it's sometimes that like you don't have to have the answer don't try and have the answer because you don't have the answer I just say just bear witness yeah I just I'm like just sit there and just believe and just bear witness and just you hearing it will probably be enough and I had no basis for this but other than I know that if I just sit there and say like you know well actually you know you've done you're a good mom don't think, you know, I get a lot of, but I'm putting the kids at risk and this, that, and the other. I'm like, look, anybody would have done the same in your situation. You're doing the best you can sort of thing. And I don't say anything, anything more magical than a good auntie or my nan would have said to me, but I do bear witness to people and bearing witness seems like enough. Bearing witness and validation, but that's not collusion. So there's collusion, which is if somebody says everybody is against me, you don't want to collude with that. But you want to bear witness to it and validate it. So you can say something like, that sounds very painful if you think everybody is against you. So that's not quite collusion. And it's easy to see how you might get into believing everybody's against you because everybody you have met so far in your life, no one has helped you. You know, so you can validate without collusion anyway that was lesson two you've got lesson one so <laughs> validate without collusion I mean, yeah i mean well i'm constantly trying not to collude with a perpetrator and so i'm trying to undo things that people have said to them they've been groomed into a position and then i'm trying not to collude with that person but also then not make them feel stupid for the fact that they have done and so i mean i spend my this is, i'm going to read all these books and then i'm going to become a psychoanalyst this is now my new career i'm going to take on we've got lots of psychoanalysts we've got lots of psychotherapists but we're kind of short of human beings that are also mps what we need are empathetic mps who know what it's like to try to live when you haven't got a silver spoon in your mouth we desperately need you Jess where you are besides you might take my clients I need the money (laughs) (laughs) oh dear I will try and stay where I am and and I'll try so Jane Austen why Jane Austen her she didn't really speak her heart very much but she was like my first witness because I started reading her when I was about 12 and there's this, this idea of somebody standing back and watching the world go on and seeing how it is and the other actors in it not seem to realise what they're doing. Maybe that's a very narcissistic position, but she gave me that sort of thing. I feel like that. I feel like that. So it was almost like a little validating witness for me to read her. When I reread her now as an adult, I think... You're such a snob, Jane. <laughs> and now I want to run off with Lydia, you know. Oh, Lydia's the best one. By a country mile. L- Lydia and Kitty, they're, they're my friends. And the Musgrove sisters, they're my friends. Not these very solemn, sort of poncy, like Fanny Price. God, don't let me get stuck next to her at dinner. 
have a rather sit next to the Bertram sisters. Or Mary Crawford was incredibly witty, even though she was amoral. So she basically was your first witness bearer to the narcissism of the world revolving around. No, it was my narcissism. Me narcissistically watching everyone and judging them like Jane Austen did. I rather liked that. I felt I'm not alone. So it was my narcissism she keyed into. As an adult now looking at it, I think it's rather kind of like, I don't think I'd get on with her if I met her. Jane, I like your books, but stop being so judgy about people's faults. So, right, well, we've got Yolly, who the level of warmth was, you know, cranked right up to ten. Your mum and dad. Bless Bless them them for inspiring a book that's probably sorted me out with a pension if I'm careful. Okay. Well, thanks, mum and dad, for the lessons in how not to be a parent, that the warmth was dialed slightly down, but nonetheless gratitude. And to all of those writers, be they writers of books about psychoanalysis or feminism or splendour, all life is there. It's been a total pleasure. Lots of love, then. Lots of love. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Yours Sincerely with Jess Phillips. If you want to hear more conversations just like this, make sure you follow Yours Sincerely with Jess Phillips on the podcast provider of your choice. And why not write a letter to your friends telling them all about this podcast? And you can also follow us on social media. We're at Jess Phillips Pod. Goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>